1: NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com/earnings right now, netsuite.com/earnings.
2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
3: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find
2: the Bloomberg Markets podcast
3: on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com
2: slash podcast. All right, Danielle DiMartino Booth, one of our absolute faves here on Bloomberg Markets, joins us. She's the CEO and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence. She and drives a following truck. following her on social. Gotta follow her on Danielle, social.
3: Danielle, you have a giant pickup, don't you?
4: I um, I have a large SUV, but I also have four large children. So
2: I <laughs> there you go. So, you, time, yeah, you need that uh, space. Uh, Danielle, she's a chief uh, strategist at Quill Intelligence and former advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Um, Danielle, a lot of our listeners probably haven't put money to work, invested in, been in the market, taken market risk in a rising interest rate environment. How are you thinking about this environment right here? We're talking about the Fed raising rates, and I keep hearing people raise their expectations for the number of rate hikes we're going to see this year. How do you kind of frame out 22 and 23?
4: Well, I mean, I, you know, look, I applaud the idea that, that the Fed is going to have that kind of flexibility because it implies that there's, there's significant runway for this economic recovery to continue. And I just, you know, I'm seeing so many red flags raised, whether it was retail control, whether it was Empire literally collapsing yesterday. And Empire headline tends to follow what follows, which is the business leader survey. New York is a very service intensive state. Um, So we're seeing some some markers out there. Uh, In Michigan, for example, I'm going to throw one quick example out. In Michigan, you've seen General Motors and Ford uh, fire back up their production lines So their their unemployment claims are are the healthiest in the nation. If you take Michigan out of the top 10 most manufacturing intensive states, we've seen initial jobless claims weaken for five weeks running now. And that flags to me, you know, along with the empire, that we're heading into an industrial recession and pretty quickly. So my concern is that the global economy and the U.S. economy are slowing fairly quickly because we've been in this compressed economic cycle.
3: That's interesting. We don't see it coming through in financial conditions yet, at least. No, no, no. As measured by no. FCON on the Bloomberg terminal, you can type FCO and go um, for the financial conditions. But another Sachs, function of the day. Uh, I mean, all the big banks also have their own FCON um, uh, indexes. Danielle, why do you think that is? Why do you think this uh, hawkish pivot, the tightening that we're seeing, not just from the Fed but globally from central banks, hasn't um, fed through into financial conditions?
4: Well, I mean, look, we didn't increase the taper, and my good friend, Dr. Lacey Hunt, says that there is a three times multiplier that you can apply to liquidity being reduced the same way you would apply to liquidity being increased, but we haven't seen this, but for two weeks into January with the with the taper increase to to forty five billion from the prior fifteen billion. We've got another thirty billion coming on February the first. So you know there the liquidity is being pulled from the system. But we're not seeing the effects of this except for in a very lagged fashion. Well, I, I, I say very lagged. Very lagged in, in central banker speak, as a former central banker means like eighteen to twenty-four months. Right. But again, we're seeing a very compressed cycle. I'll be paying attention to the Philadelphia Fed and the other surveys that come out in the days to come because everything that we that we're seeing right now suggests that we're going to get a, a disappointment when we see the ISM. That's when I think you'll see Wall Street pay pay better attention.
3: Well, when you say that we're headed for an industrial recession, when are we going to see? Is that what we see coming through in the ISM? Where are you going to see that first?
4: I think you will see it in the ISM first. And again, I think that if you're if you're talking about the nine most manufacturing intensive states in the nation, with Indiana being the most intensive of them all as as a as a percentage of their gross state product, that five out the last that five straight weeks of, of weakening initial jobless claims is saying something to you. Uh, they're up 84% in that short time frame.
3: Danielle, I often, I just can't understand that. Why, you know, Indiana, when you say Indiana, I think of um, electric cars because Rivian produces their, I think the town's called normal Indiana,
2: normal Indiana.
3: Okay. Um, and, and they must be working triple shifts. I mean, isn't everyone buying as much stuff as they can get? Aren't we ordering all of it?
4: I don't think we're ordering as much as we think we're ordering. If you if you think about car sales in America, in the aggregate, again, electric vehicles are a really hot spot right now, and there's absolutely no denying that. But it, but when you think that car sales holistically uh, peaked in April of 2021, that's not like the beginning of a small trend. You it, and, and there's more of a supply chain disruption in, in that length of a narrative. And we know that many companies have gone from just-in-time inventory replenishment to just in case so and we're starting to see evidence in the inventory data as well that firms inventories they need for them to be so in some cases you might be talking about that being the semiconductor all
2: right danielle i love having you on our show because oftentimes i hear from you first on new topics like an industrial recession had not
3: heard that at all. We need to do a whole, a whole show with her. Danielle, next time you're in New York, please come in the studio. Yeah, let's do that.
2: Absolutely. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and chief strategist at Quill Intelligence. I'm telling you folks, it's some of the smartest economic uh, analysis out there from my perspective. She is so data intensive, Uh, great follow on social media as well because she shares her thoughts uh, on social
0: as well.
2: All right, let's bring in uh, David Dietz. Let's get uh, professional again. David Dietz, Managing Principal Senior Portfolio Strategist at Gladstone Bank. David, what do we do here? I mean, I've got a rising interest rate environment for the remainder of the year going into next year. It's been a while since I've had to deal with that. What are you telling your clients uh, in terms of asset allocation for the next year or two? Well, certainly you you want to
1: make sure that your long-term asset allocation is adhered to because the problem here, Matt, is that um, you know stocks uh, do not necessarily benefit from rising interest rates. Obviously, it reduces the present value of all those future earnings. But bonds don't look so good either. Um, uh, you know, as uh, yields go up, then bond prices go down. We saw a negative return on the uh, major bond index last year, and it started out that way this year. So I think this year, you continue to uh, be fully committed to stocks. um, But you do want to pick your spots, because I think you're going to see different winners uh, this year than perhaps you've seen during the pandemic.
3: What about the, you know, we were talking with Kriti Gupta earlier, a cross assets reporter, and she said one way a lot of people are hedging inflation is just by buying the things that inflate, i.e. the commodities themselves. Uh, well, certainly stay diversified, but but we have seen, of course, commodities and
1: energy prices, particularly, uh, skyrocket since the the depths of the pandemic. Um, energy prices have gone up every day this year. Certainly there's geopolitical developments on the horizon. You've got a a pipeline explosion between Turkey and Iraq, and then you've got the United States says that Russia may imminently invade Ukraine. All those things could drive energy prices higher. Plus, of course, the more overriding factor is we are ultimately, I think, going to get out of this pandemic, and that's going to drive demand for energy.
2: So that's interesting David, you know, on the energy front I'm looking at WTI crude here up another 1.4% uh, just under $87 per barrel. You know, the energy stocks, you know, they've been they were so out of favor for both cyclical and secular reasons, but they've had a nice run. Uh, do, do I take my profits here or do I have more room to go?
1: So I definitely agree with you that they seem overbought here. Um, And and certainly, uh, you know, some analysts are coming out now and saying, hey, you know, um, this business that they're going to hold back on further development because of pressure from green forces and because uh, they just want to return capital to shareholders. Not necessarily. We're not – we're seeing, you know, junk-rated energy companies being able to uh, tap the borrowing windows very easily. We're seeing rig count surge at the same pace as it did back in the last time this happened, 2016, 2017. I do think that um, uh, that there is more discipline on the part of these energy companies. They want to return money to shareholders. Basically, shareholders need a return. It's been so long that they've been down on the seller that I think we've got more room to go, and I think that should be part of a well diversified portfolio.
3: What, when do you think the uh, tightening environment? And to be fair, we've had basically jawboning thus far right right but um if the fed is going to tighten uh and by raising rates for some some people are saying Anna wong from bloomberg intelligence now five times this year as as they run off the balance sheet when does that hit the real economy david well historically
1: it takes uh, 12 to 24 months. And historically, stocks have continued to do well until about the third rate hike, if in fact we get there. You know, there's three steps and a stumble, a famous Wall Street saw from back in the 70s and 80s. Um, so I, I think it's going to take a while. Uh, one reason we are optimistic here, of course, is there's tremendous political pressure to keep this economy going for those in power to stay in power. Um, and of course, there's there's tremendous political pressure to make sure that every uh, Everyone stays fully employed here, so I think that although there's a lot of jaw boning, as you pointed out, um, if they see any real effect on the economy, and it's difficult because all this stuff works with a lag, it takes a while. I think you're going to be quick to recalibrate exactly what they need to do.
3: That's interesting. That's in Mohammed Al Arian's op-ed that came out overnight. He essentially said that's one of the main reasons that the market and financial conditions haven't tightened along with the Fed's hawkish pivot, is that a lot of people don't believe the central banks will even do it, or that if they do, that they'll follow through and go the whole way.
2: Really? I mean, I mean, the communication has been so clear, it seems like. The messaging has been so clear. Well, the transitory messaging was super clear last year. Yeah. (laughs) Good, Good point. Good point. All right. David Dietz, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist for Gladstone Bank, joining us there, giving us his thoughts on these markets. And Uh, inflation outlook and risk assets. Let's get right to R.J. Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager at Federated Hermes. He's a former financial analyst with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And R.J., I guess I want to start with the Federal Reserve. Is my Federal Reserve behind the curve here?
6: Um, Yes. I think the tone of the FOMC speakers recently clearly portrays that the policymaking officials the FOMC members voting or not all have woken up to this idea that inflation is just too high and they need to act boldly to address it
3: so how boldly will they act we're starting to hear and see the market basically price in if you look at euro dollar futures um, a 50 point uh, the possibility of a 50 basis point hike in march
6: Yeah, it's striking. I mean, it's been a long time since we've seen that type of incremental tightening, that scale, usually 25 basis points is is dogma these days. But obviously we're in challenging times. The Fed threw out the playbook to ease in the face of a a pandemic crisis. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they have to rewrite some things or revisit the past and being more bold on the way back up in terms of tightening. That said, I, I don't anticipate a 50 basis point move. Um, I think one of the key challenges to the Fed right now is, can they address the inflation problem without causing financial conditions to tighten excessively? Uh, It's sort of like walking a tightrope. I think part of the language we're getting from them, it sounds very bold by design. Now, I don't think they're trying to deceive us, but they have to talk tough. One of the key facets of the market's interpretation of inflation lately has been it's really high now, but it won't stay there. How do you keep that market in that mindset? You talk tough as a Fed official, and you're going to have to deliver. You're going to have to tighten. You're going to have to taper all the things they're talking about. I don't think it serves their purpose to do so in a way that causes financial conditions to crumble.
3: Well, we still see financial conditions. We still see them uh, quite loose. And this is a question that uh, John Farrow has been asking a lot over the past couple of weeks. When are financial conditions going to be affected by... um, you know, rate increases. Muhammad Al-Arian posing the same question in an op-ed overnight. But I guess what you're saying is the question should be if it's possible for the Fed to tighten without financial conditionings, uh, fi- financial conditions um, getting uh, too problematic, too difficult. I
7: think they
6: need financial conditions to tighten. They're, you know, obviously the stock markets had an incredible run. Credit spreads are tight. Cost of capital is low. Capital provision—you can get capital in most places at reasonable prices these days. and I think the Fed wants that to reverse somewhat, but they don't want to cause a disorderly crash of some sort. They don't want the stock market to go down 20%. We know how the Fed responds when that happens. Now, many people have been talking about the the Fed put probably is is, uh, further out of the money these days, and that might be true, but the Fed isn't going to try to engineer a situation where we see a 20% uh, bear market in stocks just to tighten financial conditions. I think they would instead talk tough, deliver in a methodical and still somewhat gradual way, don't go 50, go 25, but stop adding to the balance sheet. Talk about reducing the balance sheet and do it in ways that the markets are not surprised at the fact that the Fed, facing nearly 7% inflation, is acting aggressively. People rationally expect they should be acting aggressively. If they weren't, I think the markets would be worse off. We'd be very concerned that our central bankers have just lost all religion with respect to inflation. That would be a worse outcome than actually trying to tighten those conditions without causing a crash. All
2: right, R.J., thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting your perspective here. R.J. Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager for Federated Hermes, uh, talking about these fixed-income markets. What is being discounted in the credit markets today?
5: Let's talk a little
2: crypto here. You know, our, when we talk crypto, a lot of times we'll go to uh, Mike McGlone. He's our kind of our crypto guy at Bloomberg Intelligence to get the investment research angle. And he moved to Miami, Florida. And I thought it was just a scam, everybody else moving to Miami, getting out of New York, selling their New York property and going down there. But he tells me Miami is becoming a crypto hub. And I'm like, wait a minute. New York is the financial hub. What's going on here? So let's bring in somebody who kind of does this stuff for a living, Alex Lamberg, CEO of Nimbus. Alex, does it matter? Does crypto have a hub like Wall Street for the financial services industry, like the city of London for financial services in Europe? Does crypto have a kind of a hub?
7: Uh, Good good afternoon. Oh, good morning, Phil. And uh, thank you for having me. Does, does crypto have a hub? Um, well, it it, it should, uh, but it certainly shouldn't be one city. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you my my, my logic here. Right. Um, so so you started off by saying you know New York is a hub for financial products, and and, and it should retain that uh, it should retain that moniker, right? That, you know. No matter what we do, as far as which industries we go into, we always want to find a standard, right? And a gold standard, or some mm. form of guidance, or some form of some kind of a standard. And 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 you 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 have to understand that blockchain will cater to a whole slew of products, a whole slew of innovation, from from finance to uh, social to medical to you know to everything else, right? So so when we do speak about and when we do speak about New York, you know, it, it's important that New York screams from the top of the uh, from the mountains that they want to retain that financial, you know, to become the, to retain that financial hub uh, as a as a gold standard. Not not only that, but they should also retain that gold standard from a regulatory perspective, right? And and that's what they are to the world. And I, I know I know regulatory is the most you know horrific word when it comes to blockchain and defi and everything else, but it really isn't, right? Uh, you know, re- regulation, you know, regulation is going to be cried for, you know, when, you know, investors or well of us participants mm. in this particular space uh, need someone that that policing and that guidance. Right. Everyone hates the police until your house gets robbed. Right. And then they start screaming. And even even CEOs like myself. Right. You know, we, you know, we we uh, we cry against regulation because we want to get into this space. But what happens yeah. when we actually create a company and we have a product and service? And, uh, other participants in the space, want it. you know, are not doing it the right way, right? And then we want regulation as well, right? So, so uh, New York will and should be that standard,
3: or or wherever CZ is at the time, I guess. Right. right. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> Alex, well. let me ask you about Nimbus because, yeah. Yeah. um, you know, Bitcoin was. The white paper came out what 2009 by Satoshi yep. and yep. Nimbus is as far as I understood, it a cipher that was from 10 years before that. So what do you do?
7: So so Nimbus Nimbus is, is a traditional DeFi uh, company, well DeFi the way DeFi is being used today, right? It's you know we have a slew of products, a slew of apps, uh, but primarily we're focused on uh, lending, uh, you know, peer to well liquidity providing peer to peer. Uh, and and lending. Where I'm taking Nimbus is I'm taking Nimbus to start leveraging all of the alternative assets that we've wanted to run in efficient markets and have price discovery uh, and pure liquidity and and, and all that other good stuff. So so we're taking what what is a $400 billion alternative asset space uh, that exists purely on the auction model and and actually starting to bring it in uh, to, to a more liquid market and a more efficient marketplace. Uh that's what Nemesis, is, you know, for the most part. I mean, we're a 100-man organization, 100-person organization, I should say, uh, in seven different countries. And we're starting to get a decent foothold uh, in the U.S.
2: Alex, I'm looking at, uh, you know, the volatility that we've, I guess, become accustomed to in the crypto space. And again, uh, Bitcoin, just for example, down 1.3% today, just under $42,000 mm-hmm. per token. What's your outlook for crypto this year and beyond, because uh, you know we're going to be in a inflation. We are in an inflationary period. We're in a period where interest rates will be rising. How do you think the crypto asset class performs in that environment?
7: Uh, I, th- I think uh, I think that uh, I fullheartedly believe that the crypto asset class is going to do extraordinarily well. For 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 basically what you just said, right? You know, the inf- you know, inflationary periods. What's going to happen with the interest rates? Uh, uh, and a whole slew of other factors that crypto really should live outside of. Now, right now, because so much of that is uh, either pegged or or, or has a tie into the traditional markets, uh, I believe that those things are going to start. Um, you know, instead of converging there, they're, they're going to start to, to try to you know dislocate from each other. And when that happens, mm-hmm. uh, they'll start trading on their own basis. What is the utility of that coin, um, et cetera, et cetera? And and the fact that you you can't just keep printing those things and. Uh, like you can with the U.S. dollar or other fiat currencies, the world will start getting that understanding. The other thing that's going to start driving the volatility down is keep in mind that the crypto space is infinitesimally tiny. I mean, yeah.
3: uh, you know,
7: Amazon has a bigger market value, market cap than than the whole crypto space combined. And yep. uh, as, as regulators start to, you know, get on the ball and start working with companies like, you know, like Nimbus and others, uh, and, and, you know, and and actually start to police and, and, and help this space more than, um, you know, more than hurt it for now, yep. uh, you're, you're going to see that value. And the volatility just start to drive itself down.
3: Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Alex Lamberg there is the CEO of Nimbus talking to us about crypto. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney.
2: I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
4: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.